The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Grace Gershuni. She has spent more than 40 years in the organic movement. She's an organic farmer. She farms in Barnet, Vermont. She helped establish one of the first weekly farmers markets in the state of Vermont and worked with the Northeast Organic Farming Association to shape Vermont's early organic certification process. After becoming a national leader as a founding member of the Organic Trade Association, Grace was tapped to work with the USDA in the 1990s to develop its organic regulations. She now teaches online. There's a course through Green Mountain College with a Master's in Sustainable Food Systems, and she serves on the board of the Institute for Social Ecology. She holds a Master's degree in Extension Education from the University of Vermont with a concentration in ecological agriculture. She has written or contributed to several books, but the one we're going to focus on today is her most recent, and the title is Organic Revolutionary, a Memoir of the Movement for Real Food, Planetary Healing, and Human Liberation. Welcome, Grace. Thank you so much, Melinda. Well, I'm delighted to have you. I think the timing is perfect for this because we so need a much broader and better understanding of the way we produce our food. There's so much misinformation out there. There is conflicts amongst people who should be on the same team, and I'd like to bring us together. But first, let me just start with a simple question, and that is, what brought you to be interested in things like soil and organic farming? What led you down that path? Well, that's a story that I tell in my book. And as a former city girl, I grew up in New York, moved to Vermont as part of the Back to the Land movement in the 1970s, and had my first garden at the age of 23 and was totally hooked on the soil and on growing vegetables. And um, it just all seemed like the only reasonable thing to do at the time, to study and learn as much as I could and help others. Mm-hmm. and work with other people who were thinking the same things back in those days. You must have had some good teachers to be successful in this. Oh, yes. I learned a lot from other farmers and from the folks who started NOFA, the, the Northeast Organic Farming Association. Now, at that time, it was called the Natural Organic Farmers Association but people like Samuel Kamen and Robert Hurrier and other folks like that were big influence. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of change, both on the ground and in policy. And I hope that we can touch on several of those changes that you've seen. The beauty of being involved in something for multiple decades 
I think, is that it gives us permission to look back and reflect on history and then also have some insights moving forward. So that's what I hope to do today. And I probably should start by simply also asking you what compels you to write this particular book. Well, as you mentioned in my introduction, I started out as an activist and an advocate for organic farming and a practitioner and quickly learned that the policy level was where things happened. That's what was interfering with our ability to do what we already knew needed to be done. So I ended up going to work for USDA and writing the organic regulations that are essentially the same regulations that are in effect now, with some changes. And that is a very unique perspective. It's a perspective that has been both a challenge and a great opportunity for me I learned a lot about how the policy process and the regulatory process work that a lot of my cohorts and comrades and colleagues back in the movement just don't understand, didn't understand at the time, and don't understand now. And so I felt that it it was necessary to really try to get this message out, and it was a very uh, contentious process. I was recruited to work for USDA by people who really wanted to have it done right, and they really got badly treated by my colleagues and activist friends. So one of the things I say in the prologue to my book is that This is a story behind the evolution of USDA's organic standards and what happened to derail them from reflecting organic principles. So when I came to work there, I saw the sanctioning of organic farming by its former arch enemy, USDA, as a turning point in the radical transformation of American agriculture and Even though this might have been a naively ambitious goal, what undermined it was not so much the barriers of the establishment that were put in our path, although there were certainly barriers and obstacles to overcome, but really the community of activists themselves had a large role in undermining that possibility. And that's really why I've I felt compelled to write this book, not just to set the record straight and try to vindicate myself with my colleagues, but to really help heal some of the rifts and the disputes. I mean, the disputes are fine, and there'll always be disputes, but there's also an, an incredible polarization and antagonism between people who really should be working together to overcome the terrible injustices and shortcomings of our food and agriculture system as it is now. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about how the certification process came about. Why was it needed? Why did farmers want it? Well, farmers wanted 
to be able to have some kind of consistent definition of organic. And in the marketplace, they were needing to be able to differentiate themselves from those that were using toxic substances or not taking good care of their soil. And so it became apparent that farmers who were looking to expand or to sell in markets other than direct to a consumer had to have some way of verifying that their practices met the expectations of an organic system. Mm -hmm. And that's how it evolved over time. And it was mostly farmer-led. The farmers really discussed and argued and set the standards and continually reviewed it and in most cases also were the peer reviewers of each other's activities to to give that seal of approval. So that was how it started really and over time it became more professionalized but it also became much more of a competitive situation and many of the different programs that evolved around the country and the world, for that matter, were borrowing ideas from each other and borrowing structure of the standards from each other, but they were also very uh, prideful about our standards are tougher than yours and our certification process is better than yours, and there were all of these turf battles going on. So uh, that was really part of the reason that the Organic Trade Association was formed was because there was a need to somehow or other harmonize these standards so that people wouldn't be forced to get multiple certifications from different but similar certifiers in order to sell to a manufacturer or a wholesaler who was requiring a specific certification. And that's eventually what led to the passage of the organic law. Well, from a consumer educator perspective and someone who's an advocate for consumers and healthful eating and food, it's really wonderful to be able to go to a market and see a farmer who's certified organic. They have that certification I don't have to ask them about their practices because I know what's written in the law. I know they're being inspected versus going to a farmer who tells me this, that, or the other, maybe tells me what they think I might want to hear, and I have to interject a level of trust. And it's difficult from a consumer's perspective to navigate that marketplace. So I just want you to know how much I appreciate the certification, but consumers are troubled by what they hear in the media. They hear that it's, oh, it doesn't mean what it used to be. It's been corrupted, industrial, organic. You hear these terms flying around. What would you tell those individuals who have concerns about this idea of corruption in organic? Well, that would be another one of the big motivations I had for writing this book because that kind of rhetoric of corruption and uh, disparaging of 
industrial or corporate organic is really one of the legacies of the activist revolt against the organic program at USDA. And to a certain extent, that sense of being sold out, really, that's that was that's a lot of the feeling that some of these folks have is sort of an inevitable result of the success of the organic market. So the big corporations have indeed gotten involved and they do produce organic crops and livestock and manufactured processed products on an industrial scale. And yet they tend to follow the rules very carefully. As a matter of fact, part of the problem of one of the things that people are misinformed about is this sense that in order to protect organic integrity, we must make the standards ever stricter and higher and more rigorous. And that will keep the big players from being able to produce organically. And that really is a misconception. And in fact, the big players really prefer to have the strictest possible standards because in a marketing program like organic is, it is to the advantage of the bigger players and the more professional players to have barriers like that to keep smaller people out. And so you also get smaller farmers complaining about all the paperwork and all of the regulatory burdens and things that they can't do organically because they're not allowed to use certain substances that they know are beneficial, but they're considered synthetic, so they can't use them. So that there's there's a lot of nuance to it, and folks who uh, who see it as just a big black and white us versus them sort of scenario really are missing the point and doing a lot of damage to to not only the organic brand, if you will, in general, but really to consumers' trust that. Organic really does mean something, and it does. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Grace Gershuni, a longtime organic revolutionary. And in fact, her book is what we're talking about. It's titled Organic Revolutionary, a memoir of the movement for real food, planetary healing, and human liberation. And I'm really glad that you just said before the break that organic really means something, because I want you to describe to consumers what organic means. Ah, well, Organic, really, I, I don't have the uh, the official definition right in front of me, but really what organic means is a production system that is biologically based and ecologically sound and that protects soil and water quality and, in fact, that the regulations require that whatever practice 
is done on an organic farm has to maintain or improve soil and water quality and the natural resources of the operation, which includes things like biodiversity. So it is very much a systems-based idea. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because you specifically state in your book that organic is not a health and safety standard. It is a process. And as a dietitian, I look at this statement and I say, it's a process. It's a systems-based process, yes, but it actually does lead to a more healthful and more safe food supply from my perspective. That's right. And it's up to you to sort that out as the consumer in the equation. And in the regulatory world, a health and safety standard is a very, very different sort of beast from a marketing standard. Mm -hmm. And in fact, organic is a marketing standard. Health and safety is the province of FDA and environmental protection is the province of EPA. And we aren't supposed to be stepping on each other's toes in the regulatory world that way. And in fact, it really is a question of a consumer exercising what is known as the precautionary principle. So you've got, oh, no proof according to the agribusiness dogma that there is anything unsafe about all of these wonderful chemicals that we use on crops. And so we can't make health and safety claims legally. But the consumer will look at it and say, well, this one has likely been treated with all kinds of herbicides and fungicides and pesticides and other kinds of sides. And this one hasn't. Um, geez, I guess, you know, on the, to err on the side of caution, yeah, for the sake of my family's health, because I don't really know, have the, the ironclad proof, but there's a lot of indications that there may be a problem there, I will choose the organic one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always say, you know, if given a choice, would you rather consume a vegetable that's been sprayed or not, no matter how many times we're told that whatever the chemical spray is, it's safe. Of course, we should talk a little bit about what's included and what isn't. And one of the things that often comes up is we do have good data showing that there are significantly less residues of pesticides and herbicides on organic food. But what I find that the representatives of the industrial model typically say is, well, You people in organic, you use sprays too. Well, yes, and sometimes the sprays are things that are improving the crop. Uh, A spray is not necessarily a bad thing. depends on what's in it. So there are some pesticides that are allowed to be used by organic producers and and. Producers do use them, but there is a very, very uh, deep vetting process before any of those substances are allowed to be used, and that's 
the purpose of what's known as the National List of Allowed and Prohibited Substances. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's been a very controversial list. But in effect, the focus on the substances really is uh, kind of misguided. It's not that you're misguided by being concerned about toxic possibly toxic substances being used. And that's really the concern that gave rise to the organic movement and to the whole range of other movements that are doing good work in food system change. But there is no purity in this world. And there are sometimes compromises. And the nationalist process is really about how much of a compromise producers can make in order to maintain their their livelihoods and be able to produce a crop. And there's a lot of people watching over that process, and I think it's worked fairly well, maybe too well. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about the National Organic Standards Board and their particular role in protecting the integrity of organic? Well, the National Organic Standards Board is a federal advisory committee to the National Organic Program. And a lot of people, again, don't understand the difference, which is really not a surprise, but it is made up of representatives of the organic industry. It has farmers, and manufacturers, and it's got uh, retailers, got a representative of a certifying body, scientist, a consumer. I, I don't have the exact breakdown off the top of my head, but it's got 15 members who are appointed by the Secretary of Agriculture to advise the National Organic Program primarily about the national list and what substances can be used. But the National Organic Program can ask for their guidance and advice on any number of issues. And it's been a great process in terms of getting people to give public comment. The meetings are all open. And so this is really the opportunity for members of the public to express their concerns and their opinions about any of the subjects being discussed. And that is taken very seriously when the National Organic Program staff people who are responsible for actually creating the regulations, changing the regulations, do their work. Mm -hmm. I think it was a very wise structure to have that board and to be able to have citizen input. To me, when we talk about putting democracy back into our food system, I think it's really important to have these kinds of avenues for citizen input and concern. Absolutely. All right. Now, we just have a few minutes, and I do have one question that I want you to address because I think it's important for farmers to understand they're at the market They're telling me how they're raising their food. Seems like they're following good ecological practices, and I suggest that they become certified. I want you to help me explain to that farmer who's on the fence 
why it's a good idea to become certified? Well, first of all, it definitely gives you a good education in what organic is really all about. Just going through the the standards and sometimes you might find that there is helpful information that you were not really aware of that you need to be doing to improve your production methods. So that whole process is an educational one. One of the other ones is that there is a lot of paperwork involved and there's a lot of record keeping required. You have to keep very good track of what you buy, what you produce, where it goes. You have to have an audit trail. And all of these things are seen as onerous by Mm -hmm. some people, but they also are very good aids to helping you be a better farmer and to run your farm business in a better way and really know what's going on with your business. Mm -hmm. So... Those are two really important things that farmers definitely gain from mm-hmm. getting certified. With one minute left, what do you want to leave our listeners with? Well, geez, I have a lot of things that I would love to leave our listeners with, but the other urgent thing that compelled me to write this book is really the looming catastrophe ahead of us with climate change. And the fact that's becoming more and more substantiated as more research is being done, that organic farming, even the lowest level, which one might call industrial organic, does a great deal to sequester carbon from the atmosphere and put it in the soil. And this is not inconsequential. It's something that we can do immediately to start reversing the dangerous buildup of CO2 in our atmosphere, not to mention some other dangerous greenhouse gases that are a result of using synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, which, of course, is not permitted to be used in organic farming. So there's been a lot of push lately to recognize and support the idea of carbon farming, and I'll put a plug in for the book by that title by Eric Tonsmeyer, who was a colleague of mine, a brilliant guy, and there is a regenerative farming that's being pushed by Rodale, among others, but essentially all of organic farming is carbon farming, and it is regenerative has many other benefits, obviously, beyond sequestering carbon, but, boy, that is such a big thing. If we could actually build just a small percentage of organic matter in the soil everywhere in this country every year, we would be able to reverse climate change. That's amazing. That is a perfect note to end on. I want to thank you so much. We have been speaking with Grace Gershuni. She is a longtime organic activist, a participant in the process of organic certification, author, educator, consultant, and she is the author of the book that we've been talking about called The Organic Revolutionary, a memoir of the movement for real food, planetary healing, and human liberation. The website is www 
www.organic-revolutionary.com, and we'll be sure to put that on our website. In closing, I want to thank my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much for this incredible work and documenting organic history. Thank you for inviting me, Melinda. It's been a pleasure.